This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to my audio imaginarium. Good to be home. I don't mind I don't mind Seattle. It's cold and it's damp. That's why the lady is a tramp. Sorry about that, Richard Rogers. Uh, I was in Seattle for the uh, for the uh, the last uh, week or so, and uh, thanks to Patrick White and Victor Vigiani for keeping the home fires burning and filling in. Uh, I was actually listening to Victor interviewing Gene Klein and Gary Duncan about the late TV Superman actor George Reeves on my Zoomer Radio app uh, while I was waiting to board the uh, the flight from Seattle to uh, Newark last week. Great radio. Great job, Victor. And I listened to Patrick uh, uh, um, interview Dr. Joseph Farrell, who joined us last week uh, on the podcast, when I got home. And uh, they, were dis- they were discussing the transhumanist movement. And I'm going to be talking about transhumanism again tonight, albeit from a markedly different perspective, in just a few moments. I- I've posted some new stories to the hot news items on richardserrett.com, one of which I find particularly chilling. Uh, There are only a a handful of things that I can say that truly frighten me. Uh, Being eaten alive by a grizzly bear, I'm told, is one of the worst ways you can go. Uh, Sharks, I have uh, an irrational fear of... I I don't think it's irrational. People tell me it's an irrational fear of sharks. Uh, But I'm very hesitant even to dip my toe into uh, Lake Erie. Um, I know sharks are saltwater creatures, but... Anyway, uh, and rats. The other one is rats. And this story is about rats. Not just your garden variety of rats, however. Check this out. According to scientists at the University of Leicester in the UK, in the event of a future mass extinction, rats may be the animals best suited to repopulate the world. And these scientists say if rats do take over after such a wipeout, they'd likely balloon in size. Mass extinctions have hit the Earth at least five times in geologic history, most recently, about 65 million years ago, when scientists think an asteroid hit the planet and wiped out the dinosaurs. Mammals took advantage of the newly available ecological space and ultimately repopulated and dominated the animal kingdom. 
Some researchers think the Earth is on the brink of its next mass extinction that could hit within the next several centuries as a result of human-induced habitat destruction and so forth. Just in the past several hundred years, thousands of animal species have become endangered, hundreds have gone extinct, many as a result of human activity. So, the tall foreheads at U of Leicester have developed a thought experiment in which they consider which animal might be the most likely to survive and repopulate the world if this purported mass extinction were to take place. And they concluded, gulp, rats may be the best candidates. They based their hypothesis on rats' proven ability to infiltrate most major land masses and islands on the planet, as well as their persistence throughout the world despite widespread attempts to control their populations. Other animals, such as cats, feral pigs, also do well in diverse ecosystems around the world, but they're not as widespread as rats. In the event of mass extinction caused either by human activity or a catastrophic event, rats are theoretically the most likely mammals to be spared, given their wide extent and ability to cope in varied conditions. Giant rats ruling the planet. That's my, my, my worst nightmare. Uh, but at least a little good news... According to these same researchers, the time frame of this purported rat takeover? About 3 million to 10 million years from now. I may uh, probably not be around, but, well, wait and find out. You'll find that uh, and other great stories on the hot news items at richardserrett.com. Check out the news and improve, uh, check out the new and improved uh, website, richardserrett.com. You'll find that... Um, uh, sorry, once you're on the homepage of that website, you'll find a little button that says subscribe to the newsletter. And I've targeted 500 subscribers before I start publishing. So I've had, um, I'm getting close, but I need, I need you to subscribe to the newsletter and then I'll start publishing. And I'm also getting some great suggestions for this yet unnamed newsletter. And you can send me your suggestion along via Twitter at Richard Serrett. Last week I mentioned Dr. Joseph Farrell was on the program with a rather dystopian view of the transhuman, uh, transhumanist movement. And uh, if you've never heard of the term transhumanism, it's kind of a worldwide philosophy, a movement, which seeks to greatly enhance human intellectual, physical, psychological capacities through emerging technologies. Transhumanists believe that technology can solve most, if not all, of our human biological constraints. Imagine being able to end all involuntary suffering, resleeve our consciousness into a machine, achieving virtual immortality. And depending on who you talk to, transhumanism is either the most dangerous idea in the world or a movement that epitomizes the most daring, courageous, imaginative, and idealistic aspirations of humanity. Tonight, I'm joined by a visual artist, a media designer, and a futurist who wants us to get creative about the future. She's been described as the first female philosopher of transhumanism. And it's a great pleasure to welcome to the program Natasha Vita Moore. Natasha, how are you? Hello, good evening. How are you? Wonderful, thank you. Let's start with a definition. Transhumanism, what does it mean to you? Well, there's a slight difference between what it means to me on a personal, subjective basis and what it means as a philosophical worldview. Let me start with the latter. Uh, transhumanism has developed as a philosophy and worldview that has become a cultural movement, and it is also a field of study. What it basically means is that 
it's a transitional period between being a 100% biological animal, as we are as humans, as Homo sapiens sapiens, to a time when we will have emerged with technology to a point where we are no longer exclusively biological, but embellish um, technological devices and other types of appendages to our biology for the uh, purpose of enhancing our senses and prolonging life. At that point, it becomes a transhuman stage of development. And eventually, the hypothetical outlook is towards post-human um, advancement of our species, and no one really knows what that is. It's, it's hard to forecast, and certainly it's silly to predict what that could become, but in a cybernetic environment, we would assume that it would mean a point where um, humans can exist in multiple platforms and multiple realities, for example, in cybernetic space and virtual systems, etc., so that we would diversify and continue our personhood, our identity, our sense of self and consciousness over time and over space and especially over uh, mediums. On a personal basis, transhumanism is a philosophical perspective and worldview that I've held close to my heart for many, many, many years. I wrote the Transhuman Manifesto in 1983, and um, I spent most of the 1990s working on developing the cultural movement of transhumanism. And in short, it means to me a worldview of people who are looking at problem solving, looking at solutions to many of the consequences we face as vulnerable human beings. When we talk about our biological constraints as humans and overcoming them, uh, can you give me some specific examples, which biological constraints in particular and, and which emerging technologies uh, will sort of eradicate those, those constraints? Certainly. For example, constraints include disease and injury at a basic level. For example, uh, when we discuss disease, we're talking about all sorts of genetic mutations such as trace acts, sickle cell anemia, different types of diseases, uh, multiple sclerosis, um, etc., to points where we develop cancer from mutation of cells and other types of diseases like ALS, etc., to a point where our body is degenerating. The brain also degenerates through diseases like ALS and Alzheimer's, senility, and uh, loss of cognition and memory. So those are natural aging diseases uh, for the most part, but the, the specific cell mutations and diseases like trace sex, cell anemia, multiple sclerosis, et cetera, and ALS are um, diseases that cause tremendous difficulties for human biology. So those, I mean, those, uh, the overcoming those diseases, that's something that obviously then the transhumanist movement shares with, with uh, medicine. I mean, the, the... Yes, exactly, exactly. Now, the diseases that, I mean, the injuries, excuse me, forgive me, I was misspoken uh, there. The injuries that we talk about overcoming are injuries that could have uh, surmounted from car accidents or skiing accidents or even warfare where our limbs are disabled, where we would need prosthetic arms or prosthetic legs. Um, from car accidents, there is a numerous number of people who have suffered um, uh, injuries to their spinal cord, cord causing um, 
uh, an inability to function from, say, C4 down so that one is totally paralyzed from the neck down or from the waist down, C7 down. So that would be a quadriplegic or a pedriplegic. So those are injuries that we look at using prosthetic parts to help alleviate the onslaught of lack of mobility, for example, and we're seeing great advances in robotics and artificial intelligence to develop prosthetic parts that um, are integrated into the brain, for example, that allow an individual with a prosthetic arm, let's say, to feel the not only the weight of a cup of coffee or tea, but also feel the heat from the coffee or tea or the cold from the, the soft drink or uh, iced tea, for example. So we're seeing a far advanced uh, notion of how design can uh, intervene with robotics and artificial intelligence and neurological connections to the uh, prosthetic part to really create a a limb that is let's say, more human than human. And, and Natasha, you even envisage a, a what you call a full-body prosthetic. Explain what that would look like and how it would work. Certainly. What I envisioned in 1997, I called them Prima Posthuman, and its iterative design process um, has brought it forward into the 21st century, being called Platform Diverse Body and Substrate Autonomous Person. I developed this because of my own experience. I uh, suffered a tremendous uh, illness in 1980 where I um, was in intensive care for two weeks and almost died. And because of that, I looked at the world anew and afresh. I observed people not just as humans enjoying life, following their career, nurturing their families, etc., but people who could have some disease growing in their body that they were totally unaware of or could be in an instance uh, notice in a car accident or some other um, type of injury. So we are fragile, and that became very paramount to me in my research and my awareness. And I thought about how, as a designer, could I contribute to this growing field of life extension and looking at the advances in medicine that were so incredible. And I thought, well... What we might need is a whole body prosthetic, given that many people's bodies have um, deteriorated, but their brains are still active, their consciousness is still active. So what if they could have a whole new body? What would that be like? And for those who have an active body, but whose brains have degenerated in their neurological or cognitive functions, what would it be like if we could back up the brain um, so that we could have a restoration of memories? I went about to design this, uh, what I call a future human prototype, based on these emotions and these um, types of perceptions about the absurdity that humans have to spend most of our lives overcoming disease. Let me just jump in here, Natasha. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. I mean, it all sounds good to me so far. Uh, are there downsides? What are the ethical considerations? We'll get into that as well. All right. The first female philosopher of the transhumanist movement, Natasha Vita Moore, media designer, futurist, and a prominent proponent of ethical means for achieving human enhancement here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Welcome back. Natasha Vita Moore is currently a PhD candidate at the faculty. No, I'm not. Oh, I'm a PhD. <laughs> I'm say hey, congratulations. Oh, that was two years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. I've got I've got old news here. Well, Doctor Vita Moore um, is uh, working on the radical transformation of human life. 
that may come from the convergence of nanotechnology, biotechnology, information technology, and cognitive science. Her work has been featured in Wired, LA Weekly, The New York Times, U.S. News and World Report, Net Business, Teleopolis, and Village Voice, and in much in, in more than a dozen documentaries. She's an advisor for nonprofit organizations, including the Center for Responsible Nanotechnology, Elcor Life Extension Foundation, Nanotechnology, Adoptive AI, Lifeboat Foundation, and is vice chair of Humanity Plus. Is that all still accurate? Uh still chairman of Humanity Plus. I'm a professor at the University of Advancing Technology, and um, I'm a fellow at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and I'm doing research at Alcor, but I'm not I'm a member of Alcor, but I'm not part of the staff. Ah, well, an, an impressive resume, nonetheless. <laughs> we could do a whole show just on your resume, Natasha. Uh, You're funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, reading recently in, um, I think it was the Guardian newspaper, about this Monash vision system. Uh, these scientists that, uh, the, uh, in Australia, basically, they're saying within the next year or year and a half, uh, they could essentially, they'll have a prototype ready that will allow the people that are completely blind uh, to see, and it, 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 I'm not uh, I'm a bit of a techno peasant, but it, from what I understand, basically it involves a brain implant which connects wirelessly to a camera which can be housed in a pair of glasses or even on the end of the, of the individual's finger. Uh, and yes. so the end of blindness as we know it. I mean, I'm guessing though that that's obviously that's just the beginning. Where are you seeing sort of the technology going in in that specific area in terms of, you know, eradicating blindness. This is just one of the many steps that we're seeing as evidence that humans are steering our own evolution and will probably break through the the historical domination of death over the human being. If you consider that the term death has been redefined so many different times based on our medical and scientific technology, then it makes sense that we could continue redefining it as to when a person is dead. For example, many, many years ago, at the turn of the century from the 1800s to 1900s, we used to hold a mirror up to a person's nose to see if there was moisture on the mirror, and that would prove to us if a person was dead or alive. I used to do that to some of my producers. (laughs) (laughs) Not you, Tim. Not you. But (laughs) oftentimes people would be buried who were still alive and digging themselves out of the grave. And so where they started putting a bell above a grave with a string going down into the coffin, so if a person did wake up, he or she could ring the bell. The dead ringer. Yeah, exactly. So it's very interesting to see how we've had to redefine when a person is dead. Now, we're also redefining what is natural to humans. If a person had been in the past born with a speech um, impediment or was deaf or mute or blind, we assume that that was their life role. Right. But now we're seeing that we can intervene through design and technology and science to eradicate the onslaught of these particular uh, situations where a person is deaf or mute or blind. And this Australian example is very on target to where we're seeing things going. So a bionic eye is just one example of the many different changes that we're going to be seeing. You asked me, where do I see this going? Is it going where we will probably totally remake the human body to where it's a very sustainable, flexible, durable vehicle for our brains and our consciousness. 
After all, what is the body? It's a vehicle. Certainly it's a sexual organism as well, and we enjoy our sexuality through our bodies. Uh, we enjoy dance and movement and skiing and sports and whatnot uh, through our body, but a new body would not prohibit that. It would only enable it and increase probably the satisfaction and the enjoyment of using it as a mobility device. So when we think about the body, it also includes not only the somatic sphere, which is the physicality of the body, but also the cognitive sphere, which is the brain. So in thinking about what type of bodies will we have in the future, I envision one, of course, that would be more durable and sustainable, and also a brain that could be backed up 24-7. In fact, backed up on a moment-to-moment basis, because our memories are so essential to our character and our personhood, and you know, basically who we are, how we love, how we live life, what our aims and ambitions are, how we care about others, our level of empathy and our perceptions is totally integrated in our memories, moment-to-moment memories. Oh, there goes another one. Oh, whoops, there's another one. (laughs) Every second that goes by, a memory is implemented. And we want to gather those and remember our lives and also use them to help carve our future. I'm, I'm fascinated by the the pursuit of immortality and this idea that I've I've heard bandied about of uh, just in a, a broad stroke resleeving our consciousness. It's a very interesting term, resleeving our consciousness. Talk to me a little bit about that and some of the technologies that would be involved. Well, when we think about, I don't use the term immortality. Fair enough. Okay. What would you use? Radical life extension mm-hmm. or prolongevity or super longevity because when you think about it what is immortality immortality means that you are alive forever uh that's a pretty big piece of cheese to chew on (laughs) yes Uh, who wants to be alive forever i'd rather be alive as long as i'm being productive loving and a uh a person who contributes to society that's true and age doesn't matter unless you're cheese Right, and then you really age and go bad. That's right. Okay, so, but the idea of resleeving consciousness uh, for radical life extension is an intriguing idea. And resleeving. Okay, when we think about mind upload, we think about uh, transferring or copying the the function of the brain onto computational systems, for example, into like, say, zeros and ones computational network. So what is that basically? Um, it means that the the performance of our cognitive properties, the functioning of the brain, could be translated from certain pulses and connections between the dendrites and the synapses onto or into certain codes based on rhythm or uh, magnitude, velocity, chemistry, etc. So that it could be transferred into a computational system and backed up. And that would provide um, a type of solid memory base for our moment-to-moment actions. Um, when we talk about resleeve, it's, um, I'd like for you to tell me what you mean by it, then I'll give you my particular view on it. Well, again, coming from the perspective of a complete Luddite and techno-peasant, I guess I would, uh, I would, I would use the term resleeve uh, to 
to indicate that you're you're taking, I guess, the, what is the essence, if that's even possible, if we if we if we even know what the essence of a human is, which is sort of a whole other field of discourse. But uh, if we were to take the essence of a human being and take it out of what is a you know a finite vessel vessel and place that essence in a new container that it that that is with that is a void of these biological constraints yeah exactly i think the term resleeve is 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 probably a 2013 term <laughs> well i'm nothing if not 2013 <laughs> right and we're in 2014 so it's a term that's that's pretty much gone into the certain spheres of, of knowledge, um, but basically it's, resleeving um, can be done without the ego losing consciousness, transferring the brain to active ego instance, uh, backed in another brain, which sounds silly, so it would be backed up not in another brain, but another system okay. that would function like a brain functions, but backing it up into another brain is just... Uh, I don't know why anyone would think that, but if you want to take the brain's functioning and which contains consciousness and resleeve it into another system, that would make sense rather than into another brain. Right, right. Um, okay, so uploading, resleeving continuity, this all goes back to the the issue of personhood. Resleeving is just, I'm not sure what it means exactly, but... Let's just say... And nor I, obviously. <laughs> Pardon me? And nor I, obviously. Yeah, so I don't know who's using these terms, but I, I think you're very bright to mention that because I'm, I'm Googling it, and it looks like it's being used a bit in terms of uploading, but to simplify it for your audience, what it means exactly, I mean, not exactly, but what it means in, in as far as I understand it, um, in my own precision, is that... When we think about consciousness and uploading, what we need to do is upload the functions of the brain. And the functions of the brain cause certain perceptions and behaviors, and we call that memory and all the foresight and everything that we do that's based on not only our cognitive properties, but the information that's fed to it from our central nervous system, which is basically our senses, right, our perceptions. And that forms our identity, our consciousness from our experience, including our emotions, etc. So to back that up would be kind of strange. What we'd need to back up is the, the functioning of the neurotransmitters, and, and then that would form this other the parameteral of phenomenological material. And the main issue here is continuity. If we want to be authentic about a person, and living longer or living into a stage of radical life extension or longevity outside human biology in another type of whole body prosthetic like my design, primo post human or in a computational system such as in an upload, you would need to focus very clearly on the continuity of a person over time. And this issue means that it's con uh, continuous that we as people in our own consciousness, we wake up every morning and we know we're the person that we were yesterday, right? We just we assume we are, so therefore right. we know we are. Right. We wake up in the morning, yeah, I'm the same person I was yesterday. You have your memories of yesterday and you go on with a certain behavioral um, tendency and maybe you feel guilt or shame or worry about something and then you sort it out and you learn from that experience and go on trying to do you know, the best you can in life. 
But this continuity of identity is essential for anyone interested in life extension because without it, you would wake up the next day being Sue Simpson or Tom Thomas. You know, you exactly. Would be a different, yes, a different edition oh. of a magazine. Yes, exactly. So the whole issue of life extension is to prolong our identity, our consciousness of who we are now, whether it's good or bad. It's that we are now. And for those of us who want to improve our lives and be better people every day that we experience the world, that gives us hope. You know, we look at what we did yesterday, we try to do better today and hope to do better tomorrow. Sure. I mean, that seems like a, a, a Herculean task, to say the least. To, to I mean, how do you, and I'm oversimplifying, obviously, but how would you reduce that, that the essence of, of what we are and this continuity to zeros and ones? No, that's a good question. You know, when you think about it, if you're a programmer, you you see in those particular programming uh, codes. As a designer, I see in design. I look, when I walk in a room or I notice the world around me, I see it in terms of placement of design, color, just position of shape and form, what works, what doesn't work. Is there enough negative space between elements uh, what is the sound, the smell, the, the textures, the, the lighting? All these different elements are very foremost in my mind as a designer, Alice, as I perceive the world around me. Now, when I'm a professor, which I am, and I'm working on my students' papers, I take on another hat. I look at words, uses of words, sentence structures, whether they're getting the logic of their argument across, and what their conclusion is. So I'm not looking at it as a designer. I'm looking at it as as a, log- as a logical thinker about quality of information. Let me just jump in here, Natasha. We'll take a time out. We'll come back and we'll continue to delve into the philosophy, the movement of transhumanism with the first female philosopher of the movement, Natasha Vita Moore. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. And we are uh, in conversation with Professor Natasha Vita Moore, PhD, and... Uh, She's a futurist, a prominent proponent of ethical means of achieving human enhancement. And we were talking about radical life extension uh, earlier, and I just wanted to allow you to to finish up on that point before I move on to uh, things like, well, a brain-computer interface. I mean, we're, we're, uh, we're now in the era of Google Glasses, but there'll be a time when we'll be able to download, you know, Wikipedia or everything that the internet has to offer directly into our brains. Uh, but let's uh, let's pursue the the radical life extension for just a few more moments, uh, Natasha. Sure. You were you were uh, you were talking about uh, you know how one could in essence reduce uh, what it is to be human into ones and zeros. Oh yes. Well, you were asking me about that, and my reasoning here, however imperfect it is, is that. For someone to see reducing it to ones and zeros, he or she would have to be able to look at it through the lens of programming or like a, a cognitive scientist or a computer scientist, etc. Whereas for me, as a designer, I look at it through shapes and forms and the elements within the environment. And uh, so that's the lens with which I see the world around me. In regards to human enhancement, radical life extension, as a designer, I look at what the problem is. Designers solve problems. We try to fill gaps. We look about the world and see where things are not functioning to a level of um, design elegance or mathematical elegance, for example, to use a, 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 a parallel spectrum here. Um, 
So for me, I look at the imperfection of the world in regards to disease and illness and death and the frustration and hardship on people who see their loved ones aging and dying um, before their time, for example. And as a designer, while I don't see in zeros and ones per se, I understand it if I can translate it over to um, what works with design. If we could transfer the brain into computational systems, it would have to be done in a programming method. And only a, um, a computer scientist could articulate that in a refined way for your audience, which I'm not and I cannot. But through my own view, I can say that the brain's cognitive functioning is set on patterns of relay of information and connection of information. And the brain is an extremely complex organ, more complex than we can possibly imagine. But we can identify certain uh, communicative neurological functions that the brain performs. And we can certainly identify areas of the brain that perform certain types of functions. So with that even little bit of information that we have, we can translate that into computer code, much like we take words and phrases and translate it into telegraphic code, you know, dot, 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 sure. dot, 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 dot. That's a very simplistic way of, of relating this. But we can take certain actions, physical actions with a velocity and amplitude and a chemical component and translate that into other means of communication. So that's what that's all about. So if you were to transfer, for example, the brain onto a computational system, which is a a miraculous task in the first place, but cognitive scientists and neuroscientists are working on this, along with uh, computer scientists, to develop a way that we could transfer our cognitions functions into computational language so that we would be copying it, essentially. Fascinating. I mean, uh, I mean, impossible to answer, I'm sure, but could you care to speculate? Well, we're going into a break here. Well, I'll ask you on the other side, but just in terms of, you know, when this truly post-human world will arrive, I mean, are we talking 50 years, 100 years, 20 years? We'll find out. Oh, okay. Okay. Good we'll, question. We'll, um, uh, we'll do that when we come back. 2014. Natasha Vita Moore, my guest here on The Conspiracy Show. Back with more Don't You Dare Go Away. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides, you're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Just a few moments to remain with Natasha Vita Moore, and we're talking about the future. And uh, she says it's time to get creative about the future. We're talking about radical uh, life extension and uh, overcoming uh, certain biological constraints uh, through the emerging technologies. We're talking about transhumanism. And um, I was asking you if you could speculate on, on when this truly post-human world might arrive. Uh, let's see. We're in 2014 now. So when you think we haven't gotten that far within the past decade or two, but we've gotten far as in regards to our awareness of what's possible. With the emerging and speculative technologies of nanotechnology and its offshoot nanomedicine, biotechnology, and all the different types of biotechnologies, transgenesis, stem cell cloning, genetic engineering, etc., and then to include information technology, which brings about 
the um, advances in artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence, and then to top it off with cognitive and neuroscience, which ties neatly into our previous um, discussion on uploading and um, uh, backing up the human brain, we've come a long way. Certainly, yes. Wow, it's amazing. So what does the future hold? I'm not someone to make predictions, but I will make forecasts based on probabilities and solid possibilities and looking at shifts and trends and whatnot with the awareness that there are always tipping points and always unintended consequences, so no one better ever make predictions of when things will happen because you end up making a fool of yourself or, or else you win the lottery, so it's a big gamble. With this in mind, I would say that probably 2050, we will see whole body prosthetics. By 2050. In 2014, 10 years is 2024, probably torsos in 2024. 2034, which is another 10 years, which is, you add that on. Uh, yeah, okay, and I'm leaving some space for problems and complications, but I, I think 2040, but to give it some extra time, um, 2050, definitely the post-human will be here. 2040, we'll see whole body prosthetics and thinking about more articulately about backing up part of our memory, if not the whole brain. It's going to take some time, but we will be able to um, back up part of our memory. And um, as far as having a post-human, now, what is a post-human? No one really knows what a post-human is. There's been numerous theoretical suppositions and philosophical conjecture, but bottom line, a post-human is when a human can exist both in biological uh, time and space and also computational time and space and other formats yet to be known. So this would mean we would uh, be in real time in the biosphere and also in virtual sphere, which is computational systems, for example, like the metaverse or really enhanced and sophisticated environments like Second Life. And um, I would say in 30, 40 years, that will be prevalent. Um, but again, no one knows. These are all uh, suppositions based on probability. So much to discuss, so little time. I mean, I'll have to have you back on. Oh. But I wanted to, to talk a little bit about brain-computer interfaces. And I know we've had, I guess, uh, going back to the mid-'90s, the first sort of human, <clears throat> the first devices implanted in humans. So we had sort of a, a direct uh, a pathway between a brain and some external device, like a computer. And I remember where I'm sitting now, we're in the shadow shadows of the CN Tower. And a few years ago, I interviewed a gentleman who was working with Steve Mann here in Toronto. And I, I, don't, I don't know if you know Steve Mann. He's sure. considered the first human cyborg. And they had developed this brain-computer interface that would allow someone sitting in Vancouver, uh, and based on their thoughts, they could, they could turn the lights on the CN Tower different colors, some 5,000 miles away. And <clears throat> so I'm just wondering, what is the state now of, of brain-computer interfaces or mind-machine interfaces? Well, with a little bit of history, long before Steve Mann, at the University of Illinois, many, many years ago, was a department called Brain-Computer Interaction or Brain-Computer Interface. And um, Von Forster created this department um, as an offshoot of the um, cybernetic group of individuals who had met at the Macy conferences when early cybernetics was developed um, and one of the leads there is Norbert Weiner, who 
actually was um, one of the advocates of cybernetics. So we're going back to early computer science around the Second World War and how it advanced. The uh, University of Illinois, with its brain-computer uh, interaction interface department, um, was looking at how to link the brain and the brain's functionings and the computer. And uh, much work was done back then. And again, I have to give a nod to Von Forster for this work. But with a lot of money being invested in this and not many returns, because, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, is hypothetical and supposition, and sometimes it just doesn't come about in a timely fashion. But in any case, because of that, there was a long, long winter as far as all this is concerned. And over the years, we've seen uh, many people working with wearable technology, especially out of MIT. And Steve Mann is one, Kevin Warwick is another, Laura Biloff is another. Individuals who work in the field of uh, wearable technology that come up with very interesting ideas. None of it is as relevant as what's going on in medicine. In medicine, we're looking at um, physicians who are working with individuals with certain types of uh, issues, uh, physiological or cognitive issues, and they work with the brain in looking at the parts of the brain that need to be stimulated, for example, and stimulating those areas uh, through certain types of injected impulses, etc., to cause reactions. So I would say the major work is being done in medicine, not in wearable technology. Now, as far as giving a nod to Steve Mann, he's doing some very interesting work with susvalence, where he's surveilling the surveillers. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing there. And he's been wearing uh, wearable technology for quite some time, videotaping, let's say, or recording his life. But sometimes one wonders, um, when you're recording your life, you're also recording the people around you. And maybe those people don't consent to being recorded. So, yes, uh, he then becomes oh. the surveiller. Yeah. So maybe if you're you're talking to Steve and he's recording it, you want to say, hey, look, I don't want to be recorded. And he records it. That's an infringement on your personal rights. I had the occasion of interviewing Steve for a documentary, and, and I, it was rather uncomfortable, I must say. I, I, I mean, I, it was kind of ironic. I mean, I, was, I had a I microphone like in front it. of him, and he Turn was... Turn that bloody a... thing off. <laughs> Give me some space. Well, that's the thing, though. He, you, you're never off. I mean, he's inundated with, you know, emails, and, and uh, I mean, there's something to be said for being totally disconnected. But I, I can't imagine going through life when, going through life where you're constantly uh, inundated with, uh, with emails and messages, and, and uh, you know, you just, you, you never shut it off. I guess I guess that works for some people. I'm more zen-like. I really need my time to just walk and not think and just be, you know, walk my dog through the park or just work in my garden. And I don't want other people's thoughts in my head, you know. I, I just want to be. What, so what, what? I, I think that's a personal thing, you know. I think Steve has every right to do what he does. But I, I do think that when he's recording other people, he needs to get a release. I think that's only fair. True, true enough. Uh, just a, a couple minutes left and, and uh, a lot to cram in here, but just leave us with some parting thoughts because I know one of the things that, that, that uh, you're concerned about are, are, is achieving, achieving these enhancements but in an ethical manner. Uh, what are some yeah. of the ethical issues that you're confronting? Okay. Oh, 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 gosh, there's so much. Oh, so tasty. Okay. Let's just part with this. I think that if we extend life and if we enhance the human beyond biology, that's an individual choice. 
and it should never, ever be a coercive type of endeavor. For those who want to enhance, it is their right to do so. For those who do not want to enhance, it is their right to remain 100% biological humans. And I think we need to have a stronger sense of diversity and multiplicity in culture, uh, not only in the Western world, but around the world. And here comes an issue of morphological freedom, which I think is going to be a very strong human right in the coming years. Morphological freedom means that a person has a right to enhance his or her body, cognitive and somatic, and a person has a right never to be coerced into enhance, basically. And I think that's going to become paramount. Um, and because of this, I think we're going to see um, not a split like the haves and the have-nots, but we're going to see that those who want to, if they uh, choose to, will probably drive the marketplace down, just like we've seen with cell phones and televisions and computers and everything, so that the price becomes more accessible to people who don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of money, so I'm not an elitist in a sense. I'm just a you know someone who thinks about these things a tremendous amount. The ethical issues here... Um, don't have so much to do with bioethics and a lot of uh, positioning and politics and um, and policy making. It has more to do with what is human rights and what are civil rights, and we need to contemplate that a great deal and then realize that we're not all the same. We all want different things, and to allow that, as long as we don't hurt or damage someone else or the environment, then it ought to be an individual choice. What do you mean by let's get creative with the future? With the future, you know, instead of thinking of it as a linear type of chronological future where we think about the the ticking talk of aging and we die, we make way for the young and then we spread our genes and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that we're going to see a massive cultural change already today. We live in an environment where we see our babies, our adolescents, our teenagers, ourselves, our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grandparents all existing simultaneously within a time frame. This is unique. In the past, it had been maybe your child, yourself, and your grandparent. But now we're seeing generations coexisting uh, and also sharing much of the same parts of culture. The new the 60s is the new 40s. The 40s is the new 20s. You know, you think about that, uh, it kind of erases these the dogma um, predeterminants of what you're supposed to be as you grow in age, not to reduce the quality of, of elegance and gratitude and, uh, and um, politeness and manners and, you know, wisdom and all those things. Those are precious commodities but that we can live older in our 80s and 90s and still be vital, into our hundreds and still be vital and worthwhile contributors to society. Well, that's great news for us Rolling Stones fans. We can enjoy Mick and Keith for another 50 years. (laughs) That's very funny. Natasha, I have uh, enjoyed our conversation immensely, and I've learned a lot, and I thank you for uh, this last hour. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your questions. They were, they were articulate and, and stimulating, and you caused me to think a little bit, so I really appreciate that. Well, I hope and we can do this again sometime. Thank you. Natasha Vita Moore, media designer, futurist, and a prominent proponent of ethical means of achieving human enhancement. 
The website, richardserrett.com, new and improved. Check it out. We'd love to hear your comments. Also, don't forget, subscribe to the newsletter. Once we hit the big 500, I'll start publishing. And as always, follow the truth. Hey, friends. Hope you're warm, dry, and well-fed. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The truth. It is a beautiful and terrible thing and should therefore be treated with great caution. Who said that? Was it Thomas Paine, Thomas Aquinas, Gandhi? Nope. Professor Dumbledore. The Richard Harris Dumbledore. Not that other guy, the the faux Dumbledore, as I call him. There's only one Dumbledore, right? Richard Harris. Good to be back in the air chair. Spend a week in the damp cold of Seattle. It's not the kind of cold we know here in the uh, the Northeast, Lord knows, but uh, the dampness there in the Northwest, it carries the cold right into your bones, right into your marrow, and there's no escaping it. Uh, I was shooting a pilot out there for a TV program for a, um, a U.S. cable network, and I can't tell you much more than that at the moment, uh, but I hope to be able to share more details soon, and if this pilot gets picked up, I'll tell you all about it. Uh, but we were shooting 14-hour days. And a good portion of that was outside, and I wasn't really prepared for that. I was not dressed uh, for the outdoors. And, and one scene we were shooting was on the bow of this ferry uh, from Seattle to, I think it's called Bainfield Island, or apologies to uh, listeners in, in uh, the state of Washington. But anyway, and it was uh, so we we're on the outside on the bow of this ferry heading into the wind in sub zero weather. And I got so used to sort of, you know, bracing against the cold and shivering that um, I actually got a sore shoulder just because my, you know, my, I was always tense, you know, in the shoulders. Anyway, it, uh, it's, you know, TV is so glamorous, right? People think <laughs> not so. Anyway, thanks again uh, to guest hosts uh, Patrick White and Victor Vigiani for sitting in and performing so admirably in my absence. And I had a, ch- a chance to listen to both shows. Uh, I thought they were just stellar. So Patrick and Victor, you two are the best. Another good show for you tonight. Our media scientist friend Nelson Thal will join us for another installment of State Secrets in about 35 minutes. Uh, Nelson, uh, if, you, if you're new to the program, is a, a puzzle inside of an enigma wrapped in a riddle dipped in a mystery. He's, he's uh, also pretty plugged into the intelligence community, and he's um, going to be here to, to, to blow your minds, really, with some unbelievable stories. Who's murdering the bankers, the rise of drones, Illuminati symbols at Sochi, U.S. Supreme Court Justice Scala says internment camps are a possibility, and much more. That's uh, State Secrets with Nelson Thal coming up in about a half hour. If you haven't checked out my new and improved website, richardserrett.com, please take time to drop by and check it out. Uh, another section of the website, the hot news items, is where you'll find pr- some pretty remarkable and might say unbelievable stories. You'll find links there to stories like Uh, how the Obama administration is in high-level discussions about staging an operation to kill American citizens involved with al-Qaeda and suspected of plotting attacks against the United States. Uh, And uh, this is according to a senior U.S. official who declined to disclose any specific information about the target or the country the suspect resides in, Uh, but they are confirming this information, which was first reported in the American – or the Associated Press – And the debate about whether to undertake a mission is being held with various commanders in the U.S. military as well as the U.S. national security agencies. 
The discussion centers on the risk involved and the importance of the target. Before military force against an American is approved, there must be imminent danger and no reasonable prospect of capturing the target. Ultimately, the president would need to sign off on the decision. The U.S. has targeted an American before, most notably Yemeni-American cleric Anwar al-Awlaki, sorry, a key member of al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula who was killed by a U.S. drone in 2011. Another American, Samir Khan, was killed in the same strike. Though he was not the target of the operation, Khan was behind al-Qaeda's English-language Inspire magazine, which aimed to influence jihadis and wannabe jihadis around the world. Now... If you're wondering how we arrived at this place in history where a U.S. president has the power to assassinate U.S. citizens abroad and perhaps on, uh, one day on U.S. soil, then the answer may be contained in the story just below that one on the hot news item section. That story is headlined, 70 million Americans on mind-altering prescription drugs. Troubling times, my friend, troubling times. And my next guest provides some of the best commentary anywhere on these troubling times. Every week he publishes an alternative news analysis email or e-letter called World Affairs Brief, which offers an ongoing globalist or, or offers insights on an ongoing globalist conspiracy to undermine national sovereignty. Joel Skousen is a political scientist by training, specializing in the philosophy of law and constitutional theory, and as I mentioned, the editor and publisher of the World Affairs Brief. Joel Skousen, how are you? I'm just fine, Richard. It's always good to be with you. Pleasure is all mine, my friend. For those uh, who are new to the program, Joel, just take a couple of minutes and explain what World Affairs Brief is all about. Well, World Affairs Brief comes out every Friday. It's my weekly news analysis service, uh, it is by subscription. People can get a free sample issue by emailing me at editor at World Affairs Brief. But I take a look at the news from the aspect of what the media is not telling us. That's how most news is distorted by omission. The key stories, the key problems, the stand down in Benghazi, for example, the you know the hidden background between President Obama. You know there are people paid full time to protect these people who are insiders within government from um, the kind of thing that. You and I would get thrown in prison for, and how would, kicked, how would out of the, or kicked out of the country? Sure, absolutely. And how do you? How would you describe sort of your world view that underlies uh, or that informs the World Affairs Brief? Well, I I take a conspiratorial view of history. To be very frank, I don't think any war has happened because of accident or because of the reasons, the uh, the superficial reasons that the history gives us. I think wars and takeovers of country and demise of country are are planned by people who have a very evil systematic agenda. Not the same people necessarily, but uh, it, it definitely seems to be systematic. It's been with us for two centuries, and they're still working at taking away our liberty, both in the United States and Canada. And uh, it's what I call a globalist agenda. They want a global government. And they have to take away national sovereignty and talk us out of that sovereignty and many essential liberties to get there. Well, when you talk about the mainstream media not providing us with, uh, you know, the real truth, uh, to me, the, the the most glaring example of that these days, and there are many examples, but the one that jumps out at me is the state of not only the U.S. economy, but the global economy. If If you were to listen to the mainstream media, you would think that we are in the midst of a 
recovery, and albeit admittedly they would they would admit it, it, it's a halting economy, but you know it's it's getting better all the time. Yet I think most people know in their gut, in their heart, that's simply not the case. And and uh, it's it's difficult though for people to get you know to get a real a real bead on the economy. And and I know that you follow uh, Shadow Facts, uh, Shadow Stats rather, ShadowStats.com, and the great work of of John Williams. Uh, first of all, explain a little bit about uh, what John Williams does at Shadow Stats, and then I'd like to get your take on the U.S. economy. Well, John Williams started out as an economist and statistician of uh, going after the continual revision between the Consumer Price Index, the official government rating of inflation, and why it was being manipulated as inflation would go up. The CPI would not, and people were saying, what's going on here? He finally got after it and started to go back and and uh, put back in, he reverse-engineered the changes so that basically he was able to recreate a true consumer price index as it has been changing and mapping that. He's been doing that for years and correctly indicating the government is fudging the figures in order to downplay inflation. But of late, John Williams, who, as you say, I have a great deal of respect for, and for the last three years, in fact, he's been predicting the imminent collapse of the dollar. And uh, I take issue with that in, in this week's World Affairs Brief, uh, because he seems to have bought into something that most free market economics uh, people, the good guys, in other words, not the Keynesians who believe in government um, fiat money and boosting the economy art- artificially, but people who believe in true free markets and, and, and a gold standard for currency that you can't inflate arbitrarily. The Austrian they, school. Yeah, the Austrian school, uh, which my brother Mark uh, Skousen, the economist who writes forecast strategies, part of that, I'm part of that, and many other notable works like Henry Hazlitt and uh, even the Milton Friedman was a part of the school. He was a monetarist, meaning he believed in inflating at a certain set rate of 3 to 4% a year uh, to keep the economy going. Uh, we are of the Austrian school, which basically says it's got to be honest money. You, you can't ever dilute the supply of money. If you increase it, you have to increase it by actual goods and productions and services and the increase of gold supply. And that any true gold standard is an exchange standard. In other words, it doesn't make any difference if central banks have gold in their vaults. If you can't exchange dollars for that gold, then it's not a gold standard. A gold standard is where each piece of paper is worth a certain percentage of gold, and government's job is to make sure that the gold is there so that if everybody who held the currency exchanged for the gold, they would come out even. And that's not the way it's been operating for many, many years, and nothing short of that standard will keep government printing presses in check. Okay, so back to John Williams and yeah. his prognostication that the, the U.S. dollar, which is hovering just above 80 cents right now, uh, is going to collapse and uh, whatever that means. But but you you would uh, you would part company with John Williams on that point. Yes, I do. In fact, uh, it is all the rage within the American right wing, the constitutional right wing, the Austrian economy, to say, "Hey, we believe in fundamentals, and the fundamentals say it's got to collapse." But they don't understand the conspiracy. They don't understand the powers that be, that they have a lot more power to keep this going than they think. Now, I am not parting company in saying that it isn't bad. It is bad. And it's uh, if you took out the sectors, for example, that are speculative and that are Ponzi schemes, balloons or bubbles, if you will, like the derivative scandal, there are over $500 trillion 
in derivatives contracts out there, and the the Federal Reserve only estimates there's $75 trillion in the whole world. Now, they're wrong. They're understating because the Fed will not admit that the United States government is shipping pallets, not suitcases, but pallets full of $100 bills to Iraq, to Afghanistan. They did it to Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. That's how come the oligarchs had $100 bills that they were passing around Europe. This and is only hundreds. Exporting their inflation. $10. If they didn't export that money, the inflation rate, if that money was circulating within the United States, then the inflation rate would inflation. go. That's right. But by exporting our inflation around the world and getting the rest of the world to continue to absorb dollars, I mean, look what happened in 2001 when Argentina had its banking crisis and shut down all the banks. People couldn't even use their credit cards. Over $500 billion came out of the mattresses or wherever they were hiding their stash in Argentina as people brought their dollars out to start to use them again. Joel, i got to uh, stop you right there. We'll take a time out. We'll yeah. come back, and it looks like uh, uh, Argentina is facing that same situation yeah, again right. soon. Joel Skousen, World Affairs Brief, back with more of my conversation here on The Conspiracy Show. We are back with Joel Skousen, editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief. And if you go to the bottom of my homepage at richardserrett.com, there's a, a banner ad there. Uh, if, if you don't see it right away, just click on Refresh, the rotating banner ads. And there's a banner ad there for World Affairs Brief. Just click on that. That'll take you right to the site, and you can subscribe to Joel's weekly news analysis uh, a service, which comes out every Friday. So, Joel, we were talking about... Uh, the inflation rate, the real inflation rate, and uh, basically the larger picture, how bad is the U.S. economy? John Williams of shadowstats.com says it's, it's, uh, we're on the, the precipice, really, of total you know, collapse in the United States, uh, and uh, we, were, we were explaining why you don't necessarily agree. Right. And once again, as a review, it's not that I disagree that... Uh, the economy is ballooned up with false money. Uh, the only question is, can they keep going? John says it has to collapse. There has to be a crisis this year, 2014. He said that in 2012, 2013, and now again, 2014. He's been wrong every one of the years, and I think he's going to be wrong again. And here's the reason. First of all, he says the only tool that the government has left uh, is raw inflation. And that's what quantitative easing is. Quantitative easing is where you buy up the U.S. debt that they can't sell. You create print money to buy it up, and you're essentially inflating the money supply at $85 trillion. Now it's been reduced to $70-some trillion. They're tapering the, the QE3. Um, and their goal is 2% inflation, correct? Their goal is about 2%. Well, you know, that's what the inflation rate, the manipulated inflation rate, has been now for the past... Uh, you know, five or six years. But in fact, the real inflation rate, according to Shadow Stats, is between 6 and 9%, and it's been that way for the past 20 years. Now, John Williams, as well as Peter Schiff, another you know notable free market uh, investment advisor and economist, has claimed that there's going to be, or has to be, hyperinflation. The mis- here's the mistake they're making. They don't understand the mechanism that hyperinflation has to go through in order to get to hyperinflation. Nobody's asking the question, for example, when in, whether it's in Zimbabwe, which had the highest inflation ever in the history of the world, or the German Weimar Republic, which had a tremendous amount of inflation. Nobody's ever asking, how is it that the common person 
ended up with wheelbarrows full of German marks, for example, to take to the store to buy a loaf of bread. I mean, if we had inflation, where would you get wheelbarrows full of Canadian dollars or U.S. dollars? Where? Good question. Can you raise your salary? Can you raise your income that fast? Good you question. You cannot. No. And so that's the question. If the government started inflating and prices went up 20%, for example, most people in the United States and Canada don't have the ability to raise their wages. And so they stop buying. How can you buy? You can't afford anymore. And the economy tanks. It's what we call stagflation. You cannot have hyperinflation unless you have two things. Number one is the government printing lots and lots of extra fiat money. And number two is there's got to be some way for the government to automatically get people's salaries raised to keep pace with inflation. If you don't have that automatic injection mechanism to the people, it, it, the economy goes down. It does not hyperinflate. People stop buying and prices start to fall. It's deflationary. Well, isn't that also a concern, deflation? If, for example, uh, and I hear this term bandied about quite a bit, and that is the velocity of money. And if, you know, money's not circulating and uh, we end up in, in, in a deflationary situation, considering the, the staggering U.S. debt, which if you include unfunded liabilities, I've heard uh, $100 trillion bandied about, may, it may be 70. Uh, but, I mean, in an, in an, in an era of deflation, how is it ever possible to get out from under that debt? Well, it isn't. That's why the debt will never be repaid. But remember, deflation is actually beneficial in many regards. Certainly for the consumer. Cheaper. Certainly for the consumer. That's right. Sure. For example, we've had deflation in computer prices now for the past two decades. True. True. I was one of the first bought one of the first business computers about the size of an Apple. You know, the first one with the green screen and things, and it cost me twenty thousand dollars with a dot matrix printer. $20,000 Wow! with a pittance of computing power. And so you can see what it's done. We've had deflation. And has that hurt the industry? Not at all. They've been able to do just fine. So deflation is not the boogeyman that it is. Here's what my analysis of the economy is. First of all, what we're seeing now is the real economy, and it should stay this way when it's under slow growth and not being engendered by either a lot of government input or people's debt. People are not buying oodles of houses with that. Now, they still are in Canada. Canada has not gone through the same housing, uh, housing uh, deflation that we have, and they still could. Yeah, our consumer debt uh, burden is, uh, is something like 110%, I think. Yeah. But you see, you've got to remember what happened in the U.S. housing market. They basically continued to make debt available to more and more people by lowering the requirements, sure. by going to zero down, et cetera, until they ran out of people to give new mortgages to. 35-year mortgages? That's right. They ran out of even deadbeats that they could get, and all of a sudden the market dried up. And so all of a sudden when the housing started to slow down and people started losing their... Then the reverse happened. The people who had been given loans who had fat jobs in the housing industry started to foreclose or lose their homes, and then that domino effect. And then we found out that they had packaged all these mortgages, and they had secured those packaged debt, which they sold overseas all around the world, with insurance policies, credit default swaps, a derivative, most of them owned by AIG and uh, uh, Lehman Brothers and J.P. Morgan Chase and, uh, and Goldman Sachs. And these people got bailed out by the government because those insurance contracts would have swamped all of the big banks. 
So where is this heading, Joel? I mean, the other the other uh, statistic that John Williams uh, talks about is uh, the unemployment rate, according to I believe the it's the E one figure that uh, the government issues is you know somewhere around six point eight percent, but uh, but uh, Williams uses another uh, indicator, which is the E six or the E three, and he says that the the real unemployment rate in the United States could be as high as twenty three percent. Yes, that is correct. And it's somewhere, in my estimate, between 20 and 23 percent. That's near Depression-era levels. But it isn't. No? There's a big difference. The people in the Depression that were out of work had nothing. Mm. They had nothing saved up. They had nothing in their homes. They had no televisions. They had no cars. They were living in shanties and shacks and, and dependent on, you know, the soup lines. You can't find that hardly in the United States except for the homeless. And the homeless have increased only a small amount compared to prior years. It's almost a permanent fixture. The point is that people have unemployment compensation, they have food stamps, they have numerous age-dependent children, they have all kinds of welfare systems, and so they're still living. Some of them have had hardships. They've had to move in with families. They've doubled up on things. But our economy has that kind of depth in it uh, that it is simply not comparable uh, to the Great Depression in any way whatsoever. So do you think that the Fed will continue, do you think that they'll re-ramp up quantitative easing, or will they continue to taper and, and, you know, wither the U.S. dollar? Well, here's the point that John keeps making. One, that because inflation is the only game in town yet, I mean, they can't drive interest rates any lower because they're already at near zero percent, at least to the banks. They got down to 3.5% for housing, you know, it's up in the 4.2 range for, for mortgages now to qualify. But the point is that's below the rate of inflation. Banks are losing money. That's why they don't want to loan unless the government twists their arms. They'd rather put their money in the speculative economy. All the new money the Fed is creating is first going to big corporations that speculate. They get into the, the derivatives market. They get into the hedge funds. They get into the, um, the futures markets, the Forex, the foreign exchange markets. These people are making 15 to 20% in those markets. Why should they invest in the real economy? So there's two separate economies that I talk about in this week's World Affairs Brief. It's a split economy. You have this speculative market where all the big players are making money. How do you expect Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan to be making billions of dollars a year when everybody else is in the doldrums in the economy? It's because they're wheeling and dealing in the speculative money, and they get almost free money from the Fed to do that. Banks aren't, don't want to loan in the real economy because they can park it in the speculative economy and, and gain 3 to 5% without doing anything and no risk. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to look at Dow Jones, you know, approaching 17,000 or whatever it is and, and sit on the sidelines. But, I mean, that scares me. I mean, that talk about over, overbought. That's right. And that's a major bubble. And that bubble is because the hot money, the new money that the Fed is creating is first going to the big banks and the big commercial institutional people. And they're investing in the stock market and driving it upward. And it's a very dangerous game. You don't dare be in it. Nobody should be in that market because they will break that market and write it down and then they'll write it back up again because they know when they're pulling the plug and when they're manipulating the markets and they have the kind of financial power, what they call the plunge protection team, uh, the committee on markets, that they can do that. And basically what the Fed is is a combination of these very big two uh, big detail banks that own the Fed, and the Fed is essentially regulating them, and they're the owners, and they regulate the Fed by making sure that their people 
are always in charge of the Fed and the U.S. Treasury. So it's an insider, incestuous relationship. But the big question, Richard, is are they going to pull the plug on the economy? There's some disinformation agents talking to all of the right wing in the United States trying to convince them that the powers that be are trying to pull the plug on the economy to create martial law. And they've got a lot of us in the nation running around like you know, the sky is falling. But I believe that they're not going to do this because they would get the blame. There's hundreds of Fed watchers who would know to the minute when the Fed pulled the plug on the money supply. And they'd get the blame. So, so, so final they, word on the economy, Joel, before we move on to other matters. And I mean, you just are they just going to continue to kick the can down the road for, for another 10, 12 years? Is that what you see? They are, and they can do that. They don't have to inflate more than this rate that they're doing now. As long as they keep inflation below 10%, it's not going to hyperinflate. And uh, they can keep it going down the road until, I believe, they're doing it purposely until war comes, when World War III comes and takes down the economy, then they walk away scot-free. It's not their fault. It's the war. And they then come out of their bunkers and say, now we've got a solution for you. And it's a world government, a new currency, and you have to have a world government to have a a world currency. You can't have one without the other. True enough. You know what happens when multiple governments try to get together and manage a currency like the euro. They all cheat. And so it won't happen until there's a world government, and you won't get a world government without war first. Joel Skousen, editor, publisher of World Affairs Brief here on The Conspiracy Show. I wanted to talk to you uh, briefly about uh, this uh, new trend that seems to be happening out on the, uh, the left coast in Los Angeles, where the police there uh, are, are utilizing something called warrantless, uh, warrantless spying and drones. Tell me about that. Well, you know, the... It was inevitable this would happen. I see the federal government getting away with eavesdropping, and we have certain uh, police departments in your major metros. And believe me, I'll tell you, there isn't a single major metro in the United States that doesn't have a corrupt police chief who's bought and controlled by the powers to be, and that allows corruption to go forth selectively. They have to prosecute, just like the DEA or FBI, they prosecute some bad guys, but they're also running you know, relationships with the mafia, with organized crime, with drug kingpins. Uh, uh, U.S. has seamless relationship with the Sinaloa cocktail, with imports drugs uh, into the United States, and particularly into Chicago, one of the most corrupt cities in the world. Hard to, hard to tell who are the good guys and the bad guys anymore. Listen, we'll take another Absolutely. quick time out. We'll come back with Joel Skousen from World Affairs Brief. Stay with us. Joel Skousen, editor, publisher of World Affairs Brief, stays with us a few moments yet. And uh, once again, Joel, how can people subscribe? They can go to my website and uh, click on the subscribe button. But before they do so, they'd want to email me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com and get a free sample issue. And they can, uh, if they email me uh, in the next week, they'll get this issue that we're talking about. We won't get through hardly any of them. We discussed. And it's a good one. Lots of uh, invaluable information here. Uh, so we were talking about warrantless spying and drones on the part of the LAPD. Well, as I say, you know, as the federal government throws more military armored vehicles and automatic weapons at local police forces, many police chiefs, you know, have visions of being a military commander and doing what the federal government does, that is, disregard the, the Fourth Amendment against warrantless spy to, uh, spying. And they're starting to spy on their own people using drones. Uh, I had a conversation with Mickey Duff, uh, who is a a, a director uh, with Project Censored. And uh, this was back in January. And we were talking about a a story that made their list of top censored stories both last year and this year. Uh, 
or t- sorry, both 2012 and 2013, and that was that the NYPD uh, are arresting, deliberately uh, planting drugs and arresting innocent civilians in order to up their arrest quotas. So, I mean, what you're saying uh, really doesn't come as that big a shock, I guess. No, and they also do it to confiscate vehicles. They go out and target wealthy vehicles by, you know, stopping them, and then they plant drugs, and they bring a drug-sniffing dog out there and and get him to, uh, you know, play like there is or, you know, react positively to the vehicle. Then they've got right to go in and search the vehicle. They plant the drugs on it, and the rest of the person confiscate the vehicle or the yacht or the airplane. And as a pilot, it's getting very, very scary now that... uh, uh, enforcement agencies other than the FAA are stopping people as they fly in uh, and, and, and and do the same drug check. And that's not legal in the United States, and they're getting away with it because the judges are not reining in the police, according to the law. That means that there's a corruption system that extends all the way into the courts in the United States. Well, sometimes I look at the police, and, and you know, it goes without saying, there are many fine police officers that, that are doing the job for all the right reasons. Uh, but, you know, I look at the incidents of, of tasering and, and uh, shooting of unarmed civilians, and I, I look at the, the, the police force sometimes as just the, 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 the biggest armed gang in the country. Well, and what's worth, it's increasing at a very disturbing rate. And as I said, uh, the judges almost never sanction the police with penalties unless somebody's captured on video that the police couldn't catch and and stop and throw that into court. And uh, that's the only way to get a judge he's forced to then. Here it is, black and white. I'm not going to be able to let these guys off. And um, that's the way it's going here. So there's some real collusion in this country. You know, it's not like Mexico where collusion is down at the lower levels in this country. The United States, it's at the highest levels. In the same way in Canada, you know, your leadership there, whether whichever party is in lockstep with the globalists in the United States, they're like, uh, and that's the sad thing about Canada. You know, it's it's not more liberty in the United States. It's not less dangerous because your government is following ours in lockstep. I, uh, I, I, I'm in lockstep with you on that one, actually. <laughs> uh, just a few moments left. Let's just tease us with this uh, story that's uh, in this issue of World Affairs Brief, and this is about non-law enforcement agencies in the U.S. Uh, buying up as much, as much weaponry and ammo as they can get their hands on. Uh, who are, wh- wh- which agencies are we talking about, and, and why are they doing this? This is just incredible. I mean, can you imagine the U.S. Department of Education buying shotguns and Glock pistols and thousands of rounds of ammunition for what? What's their enforcement thing? The weather agencies buying thousands of hollow, uh, hollow point ammunition and uh, incredible. He says it's for because our fishing officers have to carry weapons and qualify every year. Well, why do they need hollow points to qualify? The post office buying ammunition. And the biggest story that I broke, and I'm the only one in the United States to break the story, is that a contractor leaked to me who's doing the remodeling of the EPA in San Francisco of their headquarters there. They're putting in an armory into the EPA headquarters. That oh means they're going to be stockpiling ammunition, guns, and automatic weapons. Unbelievable. For what? Joel, unbelievable story and uh, a great addition. Uh, we, uh, World Affairs Brief, thank you for your time. My pleasure, Richard. Talk soon, my friend. State Secrets with Nelson Thaw when The Conspiracy Show continues in a moment. 
All right, welcome back. It is time for our bi-weekly uh, installment of State Secrets with our resident media scientist, assassination, assassination researcher, former OPP pilot, broadcaster, and past president of the Marshall McLuhan Center, Nelson Thal. Hey, Nelson, how are you, buddy? Pretty good, Richard. Nice being here. How's it going? Excellent. Well, lots going on. Let's kick it off with, of course, everyone's in the midst of uh, winter Olympic fever. Uh, and now comes word of this, um, well, there's this interesting Illuminati card game, and you can com- explain what that is. It's called the Combined Disasters Illumina- Illuminati Card Game. And they're saying that the the Sochi clock tower, uh, which is right there in the middle of the Olympic Village, uh, somehow... Um, has appeared on one of these these uh, Illuminati cards. Explain. Well, Steve Jackson came out with this Illuminati card deck in 98, and uh, people noticed that it predicted a 9-11, the terrorist nuke card, had pictures of the two towers being exploded at the same 91st floor as where the so-called airplanes hit. So um, they keep an eye on this. On this, so the resident uh, experts on the Illuminati card game depicts a disaster on a clock tower that bears a striking resemblance to the clock tower at Sochi. So, of course, uh, people are keeping an eye on that because of all the problems going on with security and with terrorism at the uh, at the Olympic Games. So, uh, the idea is that this could foreshadow some sort of false flag event. I don't know if it would be a false flag because if they attack the Sochi, I don't think it would be a false flag to distract people from something else. It would just be something that uh, terrorists are anxious to hit. If it was a false flag, which it might be, the question is what are they distracting our attention from? Just like the Boston Marathon, as we reported, was a false flag because it distracted our attention from the attack on the fertilizer plants, uh, which would uh, lead to increasing the – chance of famine in America. And of course, that comes to our next uh, point about Katy Perry's Dark Horse Grammy Awards. Yes, uh, the Illuminati priestess conducting some sort of a witchcraft ceremony during the Grammys. Now, um, I got to be honest with you, Katy Perry is kind of uh, 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 popular around our house, Uh, (laughs) not with me personally. But uh, uh, so what is this all about, Uh, Katy Perry, some sort of Illuminati priestess? Well, Natalie Grant, a pop singer, gospel singer, walked out on the Grammys after Carrie Perry Bazaar's witchcraft ceremony during the event where there was surrounded by demons dancing around an upside-down broomstick during a performance of her song, Dark Horse. Of course, we've been talking about the Dark Horse, one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, ever since uh, the the recent... Uh, uh, Jesuit became part of the uh, part of the Pope of the papacy, and it's been alluded to by a number of watchers of the papacy that he is one of the representatives of the dark horse. And so it's interesting uh, that the connection between Google shows up and his name was Burgoogle and we've got the dark horse and Perry Perry wearing clothing bearing an Illuminati Knights Templar cross. And um, so it's uh, it's these messages, of course, what we're doing here ultimately is uh, Bible scholars know that in Amos 3, 7, it says, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. So likewise, in the uh, satanic 
version. Satan also copies uh, the scripture, and he warns his servants in advance. And so it's important to start to learn his grammars and study his grammars, which media scientists and Bible scholars also do. I had uh, Mark Dice on the program a couple of weeks ago, uh, the author of uh, the Illuminati in, in the music business and or the music industry, and how uh, they have event- essentially infiltrated uh, and and uh, usurped the music industry for their uh, their uh, their end game, whatever that might. Be. Well, I think we know what their end game is, but uh, and and the name Katy Perry came up, and of course uh, uh, names like Rihanna and uh, and. Uh, uh, Kanye West and and uh, Jay Z and and all of these artists, which uh, you know, who have sort of been been flashing the Illuminati signs in their videos, yeah. and uh, it's it's quite interesting to watch. I mean, when you sit back uh, and if you just allow sort of these music videos to wash over you without paying any attention, you miss it. But then once you're sort of clued in, you can't not notice it. Yeah, it's important to study these grammars of the satanic world because they are going to pop up and in advance show us what's going to happen. What you're saying reminds me of we're standing on the shoulders of giants, John F. Kennedy's secret society speech, and especially Marshall McLuhan who pointed out that the arts and sciences are in the pockets of these secret societies. And when he said the word arts – he meant exactly that, the military-industrial complex using the Beatles and music and all forms of music as uh, is in the pockets of the secret societies, and they use it for cultural reconditioning and brainwashing. So what are we – final point on this, and then we'll move on. But what are we saying here then? Do, do artists like Katy Perry and Rihanna and Beyonce, do they know that uh, – that, uh, Christina Aguilera, do they know that they are uh, basically – uh, tools of the Illuminati, or do they just are, are they oblivious to it? We can only speculate. We know that, for instance, uh, there's interviews of Bob Dylan in which he made it clear that he had made a deal with the devil and he knew it. We know that a lot of times, as it says in Scripture, uh, the God of this world is Satan, the devil. And a number of times when you hear the artist say they're doing it for God, <laughs> that's what they mean. They don't mean God the Father or the Godhead. They mean the Satan, the the, the God of this world, as it says in Corinthians. Whether they know it, probably not, because most of these people are highly deceived. Uh, Satan comes as an angel of light. He's the great deceiver, and he's very, very wise and powerful, and uh, he can deceive these people to go along and just fall in line. And quite often they're brainwashed, they're mind-controlled, they've been drugged, they've been sexually abused, and all sorts of abuses put on them in order to control their minds. They're put chips in their brain. Everything is done. I doubt very much most of them are aware of it. Nelson Thal, our resident media scientist, assassination researcher, and past president of the Marshall McLuhan Center, here with State Secrets, which is heard on this program every two weeks. Well, the financial world, Nelson, was shaken earlier in the month with the the apparent suicide of four bankers. And I think since then, there have been a couple of other uh, deaths in the financial world uh, that are rather sort of cloaked in suspicion. If, in fact, these bankers are being murdered, as some speculate, or being suicided, as they say, uh, who is doing it and, and, and why? why? Who's killing these bankers? Well, you know, Richard, this really, what the experts are saying behind the scenes is this goes back very much to the uh, and is connected with the the very first banker, the Italian banker, dubbed God's banker, Roberto Calvi, who in June of 82 was found hanging off of Blackfriars 
bridge, as you'll recall. Uh, matter of fact, back in 82, we covered this, this whole thing. It's very, <laughs> but um, uh, there's definitely, uh, it's, you know, there's a movie called The International that they're saying is, uh, it has a lot of clues as to what this is all about. And um, I would suggest people take a look at the movie uh, The International. Well, what do you what do you what do you think is going on? Is it because these bankers know something? Is it about the the, the vast market manipulation that many of us suspect has been going on, not only with the you know, uh, with the gold market, but uh, other equity markets and so forth? Well, basically, they're telling saying that it's to cover up a lot of the global criminal activity. We know that with the uh, with the um, setting of the interest rates worldwide. And the different the forex trading and the and the derivative trading and the all the different corruption and criminal activity that a lot of these whistleblower bankers are trying to come out and tell the truth and expose it and they're being prevented and actually murdered in order to keep the criminal activity and remember most of what they're doing as your previous guest mentioned it's a fonz it's a ponzi scheme uh, to, to 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 keep the global system alive and uh, there's really nothing behind it and uh, the bankers are trying to expose it and in doing so um they're the ruling elite don't want it exposed and the way to keep it quiet is just to murder them so it is possible to keep a major large conspiracy going people think they are told oh well you can't keep a large conspiracy going if you start killing people massly and you create mass death lists and murder a lot of people you can keep a large conspiracy quiet uh for instance the manhattan project was a conspiracy prior to the war uh, during the war that is prior to the dropping of the bomb a major conspiracy with 3000 scientists and thousands of military personnel a major large conspiracy was kept quiet because if you spoke at a turn you were murdered so this is what's happening this is a major conspiracy and the deathless is what proves that the conspiracy is being successfully covered up. Yeah, this time it's it's the bankers, and it's it's sort of reminiscent of several years ago when we had all these bioweapons experts like David Kelly being suicided. Yeah, we had Dr. Kelly was suicided. That was in order to, of course, uh, uh, cover up the lie of yellow cake, which was uh, which Bush used during the uh, George W. Bush used during the the state uh, State of the Union address, which he tried to. Uh, he was doing everything to make it uh, look like like Saddam was uh, was attempting to get a new nu- atomic or nuclear bomb, and of course the. There's been lots of death lists. The psychiatrists, we talked about the psychiatrists that programmed the sleepers were being murdered. Um, there's a there's a movie that came out of Hollywood as a, that that played on this as a joke. Remember the the, the chefs of Europe are being murdered. Uh, oh yes, that uh, yes. The JFK death list is 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 over a thousand people now. So. I want to talk to you about the, uh, uh, the the story or the rise of the insect drones and the idea now that uh, uh, the uh, these drones are becoming so small and that and that DARPA and these uh, uh, you know defense contractors are basically borrowing designs from nature, you know uh, butterflies and insects, uh, uh, um, you know because obviously nature has spent millions of years perfecting flapping wing flight, so now engineers 
are reproducing it with machines, the rise of the insect drones. Tell me about that, Nelson. Well, the engineers uh, developed long ago. By the time the story surfaces, you know that it really happened many decades ago, as McLuhan said. They're called micro-drones. They're insect-inspired vehicles, fly-sized robots. And um, actually, the stories now are coming out about them. But, Richard, uh, behind the scenes, intelligence agencies uh, report that these things have been in the works for decades. Uh, by the time it surfaces on the Internet, these stories, you know that means that it's really obsolete. They've moved on to other technologies, and so now they can release this information to the public. So it is a literal you know, fly on the wall. People, I love to be a fly on the wall. Well, now they really do have a fly, and that fly on the wall could be a drone, and it's spying on you. Yeah, and they've had it for decades. This is not new. They've had it since the 60s and 70s. They've had these flying drones. Um, it's only now that they're talking about it and releasing it because now they don't need drones. <laughs> they can just use me beams in order to measure you. And to, from the satellite, they can scan your mind patterns from the satellites and pick up your thoughts. So um, remember this. Once it comes out on the Internet and it's it's billed as being some new technology, you know it's really obsolete. If it works, it's obsolete. Nelson Thal here, our resident media scientist, joins us every two weeks for State Secrets. Uh, Many of these stories, of course, gleaned from Nelson's uh, uh, vast network of sources inside the intelligence community. Let's talk about uh, this ex-military official, Kristen Megan, who's sort of uh, blowing the whistle on this geoengineering experiment. Yeah, she witnessed the importation of canisters of powdered toxic metals onto Air Force bases. And this is the missing link. These metals are the same ones being found in soil samples, uh, rainwater samples, dust samples, and blood samples around the world. So as a geoengineering whistleblower, she's exposing that this is what they're spraying up in the air and, of course, uh, is having a tremendous problem with our health and affecting our health. Um it's probably going to affect her health as well. It's unfortunate. I hope these people, uh, you got to give, they're very courageous and hopefully she'll be able to stay off a death list. Well, you know, for years, uh, those of us who have been sort of tuned into the whole uh, uh, chemtrail phenomena and and, and geoengineering as it's now uh, coined or termed, this, you know, placing millions of tons of aluminum particulates into the atmosphere. uh, And we've been asking ourselves, where are the whistleblowers? Where are the whistleblowers that are going to actually, you know, be able to nail this thing down? And and, and now we have uh, Kristen Megan. So, yes, Godspeed to her. I want to jump ahead, Nelson. Next item I'd really like to go on to is this uh, is the this the Bilderberg plan to obliterate hum- humanity. Yes, uh, and Dan well, Estelin is the author of the bestseller Trans Evolution: The Coming Age of Human Deconstruction. He wrote the book. It's largely based on a Bilderberg white paper smuggled to him by a Bilderberg insider. The document was filled with info which spelled the end of the human race as we know it. Estulin explored the methods that the super elite want to use to exterminate 90% of all people. They agreed that starvation is the most likely candidate. And that's interesting in light of Katy Perry's Black Horse Grammy, where the Black Horse of Revelation is is famine. Ah, interesting. 
So there's all sorts of connections and dots lining up. It looks like they're going to try and um, uh, bring in a famine. And it certainly jives with our Boston Marathon false flag report. It, we were told at the time from inside intelligence reports said that was a false flag to distract everybody's attention from the fertilizer plant in Texas attacks from par satellites using particle beams. And so um, a, a lot of the dots are lining up here as we go along. All right. Listen, uh, I think we have time for one more, and I really would like to talk about uh, Supreme Court Justice Anton Scalia, who was speaking yeah. recently at the University of Hawaii and had some interesting things to say about internment camps. Yes. Uh, in uh, The comments were made in response to a question about the legality of Japanese internment camps during World War II. And uh, Scalia says, quote, it was wrong, but I would not be surprised to see it happen again in time of war. He says that the U.S. could reinstate internment camps in time of war. And there's no doubt, given what your previous guest talked about, the wanting them to bring in martial law and use that to move people into internment camps, it shows that Scalia would make it totally legal. We've got to remember that the fascists, especially the Nazis during World War Leading up to World War II, all the, the, the camps and the concentration camps were all legal. They legalized it. And if you take a look at the home, uh, the, 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 uh, the recent uh, different acts that have been passed by the Congress in the United States, they've made it so that anything they want to do is pretty well legal now. Yes, uh, in the whole we, we, Security Act. It's it, you know we've talked about this. The the, uh, the thousands of pages were not let, were not read. The Congress passed it, and now they're looking at it and they can't believe that they've legalized anything that they uh, that, that the president wants. Yes, the, the radicals have taken over. Essentially, it's no longer a rule of law. It's they've legalized criminal activity. Yeah, absolutely. The inmates are running the prison. Uh, now, we might have time for one more. Let's, let's talk very, very briefly. I want to talk about this um, uh, Santa Clara, California. There was an attack apparently on the power grid out there, and uh, now it's being linked to the military. Just, just a few uh, seconds on that, if you could, Nelson. Okay, well, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission Chairman John Wellinghoff called it a well-planned, coordinated, quote, a well-planned, coordinated and executed attack on a major piece of our electric grid infrastructure, unquote. It happened on April 16, 2013, and it appears to be a test run for a future terror attack, uh, fall, not so much a false flag attack, but an actual terror attack by the ruling elite in order to uh, bring in martial law. And it was avoided quick, by quick thinking by utility workers who rerouted power around the substation. But it certainly was a well-planned attack. It was a test run. And uh, obviously, it was a dry run. They didn't want it to happen. But it was just like all the other, uh, quote, 9-11s. They practiced them in advance. All right, Nelson, we've got to cut it there. Yeah. Nelson, state secrets, and uh, they can go to your Back Twitter Twitter account. Where do you – your Twitter account to read Nelson these? Nelson S. Thal. T-H-A-L-L, Nelson S. Thal. All these stories are on my Twitter account. Excellent. We'll be back in two weeks. Take care, Rick. Thanks, Nelson. State secrets. Thanks, Tim. Back next week. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.